HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. My name is Hannah Forden. I'm the membership coordinator at Heritage Radio Network, but even before I joined the team, I loved listening to HRN during my subway commute. It made the time go quickly and left me feeling inspired for the day ahead. HRN listeners tune in from all over the world, but there are a few traits that we all have in common, no matter where we listen from. A curious palate, the fierceness to make a difference, and a hunger for lifelong learning about the culinary world. As you know, Heritage Radio Network is a listener-supported nonprofit. To deliver the most ambitious, entertaining, and of-the-moment stories in 2018, we need your help. We need to raise $150,000 by December 31st to accomplish these goals and to keep your favorite shows on the air. Together, we can make this HRN's most exciting, impactful, and delicious year yet. Become a member by donating today. Join us at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate, and you'll immediately start enjoying benefits such as VIP invitations to HRN events, where you will mix and mingle with your favorite hosts. Memberships also make a perfect holiday gift for all the foodies in your life. This year, why not give the gift of food radio? You'll hear your generosity in action for the year to come. Help keep our lights on and our mics hot by pledging your support today at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Birds on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And we're back after a holiday Thanksgiving break. I hope everyone had a delicious one this year. Um, I certainly had um, more than my share's worth. <laughs> Multiple feasts, actually. Usually that's what happens over a long weekend. But uh, yeah, what can you do? Um, this time of year, especially right after Thanksgiving, is usually the time when I see a lot of best of lists coming out and, you know, the best cookbooks of the year, the best food books of the year, what you need to get for people in terms of cookbooks, <laughs> which is what I talk about a lot on the show. So I'm, I thought we'd 
you know, sort of turn the tables a little bit and talk about the history of cookbooks and what they mean. So I'm really delighted to have on the author of a book, one of the best books of the year, I think. (laughs) But it is about the history of cookbooks. It is called Food on the Page, Cookbooks and American Culture. The author is Megan J. Elias, and she's right here. Hi. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, This is a monumental work of researching all of American cookbooks. Mm -hmm. So starting from the first one written, what was it, Amelia Simmons. Mm -hmm. How did you find out that this is, and what what year was that again? Uh, 1796, I think. So she wrote the first American cookbook. Yeah, it's, uh, it's recognized as the first American cookbook. It's not the first cookbook published in America. Okay. But the there were cookbooks published in America that were reprints of English cookbooks. So it's sure. unique for being by an American about American food. It's about American mm-hmm. food. And it's called like American cooking or something like yes. that. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I wonder if she she knew that she was making like the first American cookbook. Oh I don't think so. No. <laughs> it's not and it's not that intensively American. It's uh-huh. um it's just that it includes some ingredients like pumpkins that are not mm-hmm. uh, English, right? Sure. Um, so you wouldn't find yeah. those in those re- reprints, right. From Britain, but she doesn't make a big deal about what she's doing. Oh. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> right? I know <laughs> she wasn't like this is local turkey and like we right. should take pride in it right, because right. we're American. No, she was not a locavore. You know, okay. <laughs> I mean, everyone was a locavore right. at that time, but uh, yeah, not consciously. Um, I, I think it's really fascinating that you trace this this long history, but also you know cookbooks. Uh, as a book, I mean, not everybody even had access to books going back that for long no, ago. No, yeah, very few so, people. So recipes existed in other mm-hmm. forms, so right. maybe notes and letters. And largely through oral culture. Mm-hmm. Um, cookbooks were something that belonged to wealthy homes, and they yeah. were used not usually by the woman of the home, but by her sa- her by her to communicate with her staff. Uh So the woman of the house would be literate and she would read the recipes and she would then tell the cook, this is what you do. So the women who are, there's a really fascinating gap between the people who are doing the work and the words on the page. Yeah. Yeah, and that lasted through, um, really through the 19th century that that, uh, people who did the cooking were often not literate, and particularly in the South and enslaved households. Yeah. Got it. Um, also, what's interesting is that this concerns this whole book really concerns like female history too in yes. America. Yeah, it does. Uh, uh, yeah, it's this is women's literature to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Even when it's written by men, it's about something that women are expected to know about and do. Wow. So written, yeah. um, and a lot of these, the cookbooks that I talk about actually are written by men, but they're. They're, even when they say they're a man's cookbook for men, the likelihood is that most of the people who bought the book were women. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's a whole, um, a whole phase in the 1930s and 40s when uh, there are a lot of cookbooks that are by men for mm-hmm. men and that actually claim that women aren't good cooks at all. Right. That men are much better cooks because they, uh, they don't have to be concerned with the boring stuff of like making a family dinner every night. They can so, be much freer. So men were the gourmands or the mm-hmm. epicures. Exactly. Telling the women what to do. Yep. How is that any different from today? <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, most, yeah, most of our, our well-known chefs are male. It's mm-hmm. changing. There's more consciousness about mm-hmm. women in the kitchen. But, yeah, men definitely set the, um, set the tone. And they have, yeah, they have been doing that since, uh, really since the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's, at the same time, there's been um, 
you know, this whole kind of stream of cookbooks that run alongside that that are all written by women for women, Mm -hmm. often written by professional recipe writers in places like General Mills, you know, kind of corporate cookbooks. Okay. Um, So that's also a big influence, Mm -hmm. right? And then you could, could in some ways, claim that, that that's male cooking too because if it comes from a corporation probably the head of the corporation is a man but the head of the like the (laughs) the recipe you know department is female interesting yeah I I think that um, it was interesting to learn that so many cookbooks or part cookbooks Mm -hmm. were actually like sort of also manuals on household stuff like etiquette entertaining gardening also cooking right and um it was a it sounded like very didactic a lot of these things were yes almost yeah 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 they, this and is how you should hold your like you know control the kitchen whatever like right. <laughs> pantry and it's uh, there i mean as you're saying this is women's history but it also shows us how much women's history is central to any history mm-hmm. because when you open those books and you see that the entire household and everything that could happen to you within the four walls of the household are dealt with, mm-hmm. then that's, it tells you a lot about everybody's life, right? Mm-hmm. It tells you that for, for most of the 19th century, your first medical care came from the, the woman in your house, the mm-hmm. mother figure, okay. um, whether a grandmother or uh, sometimes a cook, um, often the, just the mother. Um, all, all these cookbooks have, are full of remedies, Mm-hmm. And they're sort of non-specific ailments, but that's where people, that was the first line of defense was the woman in your house makes you some beef tea or some, um, what is that thing called? Toast water. <laughs> sounds really Toast like water. it would cause you to become sick. Um, and those things that... I haven't that heard are, of that one. Oh, no, you must try it. Okay. <laughs> Next time you're feeling poorly, you have dyspepsia, you have oh to have some gosh. toast water. So that... that it's a very different world from the one that we live in now, that your your medical care is part of your home. On that note, you have a section about how there was this a movement uh, sort of disdaining nutritional science at the same time that, you know, f- folks in America were discovering things like vitamins and supplements right. and adding them to processed foods and, you know, mm-hmm. having marketing them on their own. Yet in cookbooks, you write that people sort of preferred the more folksy mm-hmm. recipes and ton- tonics, I guess, or, right, right. or solutions to that. Chicken soups, if you will. Yeah, and that's more that's more kind of uh, mid-19th century and late 19th century. When you get into the 20th century, you really, the cookbooks just drop all of that household stuff. Mm-hmm. It's There's nothing about remedies, um, nothing about making your own pomade, which is, you find a lot in 19th century cookbooks. Pomade? Pomade hair stuff. Oh, oh. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the pomade could be made with, with ingredients that were also culinary. Oh. So, like, there's a lot of blurring Olive of lines. Olive oil? <laughs> Olive oil, rose water. Yeah. Um, all kinds of fats. So, there's just, there's this whole range of stuff that you find in a cookbook in the 19th century that just disappears in the oh, 20th century. Yeah. And then it's just about food. Hmm. So tell us a little bit how you came to write this book, because your last book re- had to do with nutritional science, right? Yeah, my, I, my first book was about the home economics movement. Okay. Um, and in between that, I've written some other, I wrote a book about lunch, uh, which sort of led me into this more too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a book about what kind of what people were eating between 1890 and 1945. But I got the, the book about home economics I had this kind of problem where I was reading all of these textbooks written by academic home economists, and they were about how to cook. And they were they were scientific, but they were also they were also domestic. And 
the things that I was reading were actually making me hungry. And mm-hmm. I was finding like that there were tasty things in these books. But then I read from con- our contemporaries writing about home economists, there, there was this idea that home economists were opposed to pleasure mm-hmm. in food and that all they wanted you to do was just like eat vitamin pills and get all your nutrition that way. And I did never, I never found anything like that in these books. So I thought there's something going on here. And I wanted to get to the root of when that, when that opinion of nutritionists and food scientists uh, emerged, when it was constructed, really. And I found that um, in this kind of weird moment in the 1920s. Um, There's, there's a lot going on. And that's the moment of the creation of the gourmet in American culture. But it's like all this stuff that I kind of had grown up with um, you know, kind of thinking I knew intuitively, like, French food is better than American food, and it always has been. Mm-hmm. Like, there was actually a moment in American cookbooks when that idea was constructed, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it wasn't an eternal truth. Right. And, I mean, if you think about it, it's not true at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it it's, could be an opinion. opinion. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, but it was treated as if it was absolutely... Fact. Yes. I'm, I'm feeling so many... A feeling. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, like, thinking of so many parallels to what you're saying with regards to, you know, wellness and new trends now and our diets and so forth. And, uh, you know, sometimes reading some of these intros to recipes and how... Or, like, the cookbooks that, that are so didactic from another era, it sounds almost comical, right? right. But then, then I thought of, you know, the Gwyneths and mm-hmm. the... Who knows what? The, the fad dietists... I'm like, you know, it's kind yes. of the same thing. Yeah, I think we're definitely coming back around to mm-hmm. that with cookbooks. The the idea of the um, the health cookbook. Yeah. That's not just like a kind of outlier or health food cookbook, but, you know, for a specific problem that you perceive you have with your body and you can change that with your food. Right, and it's a very personal sort of I am the expert and it's coming yes. from going to the at the amateur. I right. love how you summarized uh, cookbooks and what their purpose or what you're looking for in this book Um, From your intro, if I may read a little bit, you write, when we read cookbooks for what they have to say about national foodways, we hear voices that have long been disregarded. The voices of people, many of them women, who understand that every meal is at once a cultural statement and a performance of self. (laughs) I thought that was really great. Yeah, it makes it hard to go into the kitchen after (laughs) you write something like that. Ah, Yeah. I'm (laughs) representing something bigger than what I thought. Right. Uh, (laughs) But you always are. Yeah. And it it only takes, I mean, you don't have to think about it. But if you just take half a second, you realize that you are always doing something because of something that someone told you or that you read or that that I think is cool or something. (laughs) Right. 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 I love that. Oh, so so much to talk about. But we're going to cut to a quick little commercial break and be right back. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. 
purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. All right, we're back chatting more with Megan J. Elias. She's the author of Food on the Page, Cookbooks, and American Culture. I should also say that you're a professor mm-hmm. at Boston University. Yes. And what are, what's the course that you teach in? Uh, right now I'm teaching uh, the introduction to gastronomy, and next semester I'm teaching food and gender, which is going to be a lot of fun. Dream job. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so I know that you write in the introduction to this book that you didn't want to organize it by like hits throughout mm-hmm. the years, but rather by um, ideas. So, um, but however, <laughs> what are some of like the really big milestones? Cause uh, they're yeah. sprinkled throughout there. Um, you know, from the first cookbook, mm-hmm. which we talked about by, by a mysterious person named mm-hmm. Amelia Simmons, mm-hmm. um, to, to Fanny Farmer. Who right. is this person? Yeah. Tell Fanny us. Farmer is so interesting. Um, she was a very enterprising uh, woman, mm-hmm. and she started a cooking school. And there's a lot of confusion about what those cooking schools were because they're not like any kind of cooking classes we have today. They were started as a way to give working class women a kind of like almost pseudo professional training so okay. that they could ask higher wages oh. for cooking work. So, cooking uh-huh. work had always been um, really undesirable, but. Mm-hmm you could always get a job as a cook. And um, if you were a woman, I should say, mm-hmm. <laughs> much easier for them. Um, and it wasn't good work. And these cooking schools that emerged at the end of the 19th century were a way to lift up working class women a little bit by giving them a, a, like a certificate. So they could say, like, I'm not just a cook, I'm a graduate of the Boston Cooking School. Got it. So it's, yeah. it's a... a <clears throat> Excuse me, Sandra. <clears throat> Sorry. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of like a ladder for upward mobility. Okay. And she she's famous for a couple of things. One is that she, um, she Fanny Farm was really interested in standardizing recipes, which hadn't been done before. And you can see why if you think that, you know, this is this is didactic. It's to teach people how to do something a particular way so that their employer can know what they're getting. Yeah. So the, you know, if the employer employs someone who's gone through the, the Boston Cooking School, they're going to make their um, chocolate pudding the same way every time, right? right. So you don't – the employer and the employee have a better understanding of what's expected than mm-hmm. they had in the past. And the other thing she's famous for is level measurements, <laughs> which were, um, you know, being, saying, you know, one cup right. and one teaspoon. Uh, what she really did, the, really, the way she really changed cooking was that she sold the implements – so before cookbooks are full of these these measurements like a wine a wine cup full, <laughs> a coffee spoon, of course, a teaspoon, right? Right. Yeah. Um, or a tablespoon. So these things really had a they had a life outside of the the cooking process. Oh my goodness, that's but brilliant! It is yeah, that right. She right? marketed actual cups. Yes, a cup. Yeah, and so people um, people accuse her of having taken all the fun out of cooking because she took the the guesswork out in a way, or took the variety out. But I mean, I would just say that no one ever I mean certainly in my household no one has ever no one ever fills the a cup the same way like some you know one person will mound it one person will scrape it off and it's, the, it's yeah it's interesting that people had that response because nowadays people a lot of people I know don't know what to do if mm-hmm. there's not exact instructions right right um, so to imagine a day when people thought, oh, you just killed, you know, the fun out of oh. recipes by making it too right. exact. The idea that it took away the sensuality of cooking, that yeah. you should kind of know by feel what's the right amount. 
Um, and, and that's okay if you're just cooking for yourself, but if you're cooking for a living mm-hmm. for people who can easily fire you and you have no workplace protections, yeah. it's, good to, you know, <laughs> it's good to get it right. <laughs> right. So it wasn't necessarily for, for the home cook then. It was like for, from, coming from a professional point yeah. of view. Yeah, I and guess. that, I mean, yeah. I can never sort of emphasize this enough. Home cooks, um, they're home cooks you might find on a farm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but even on a farm, there were hired girls, and yes. there were also like one's own children were put to work <laughs> in the kitchen. Um, and in cities, home cooks through really through the end of the First World War, even through some of the 1920s, home cooks were not um, regularly cooking meals. A, a, a housewife ran her household, but she had someone in to cook the food. Okay. So they were professional, although yeah. they were not treated like professionals. Oh, they were blue-collar. So many changes. Um, to talk about a completely different book that is, I, I think, a bit of a cult book, which mm-hmm. you write about, later on in the 70s, we see like the politically um, motivated sort of response to the industrialized food system cookbooks. Yeah. Um, we see uh, that there's a, the Tassahara bread book. Yes. Yeah. Did you know about that? I did know about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's it a has fascinating. Such a, um, such a history. And it, it's really um, an amazing book because it comes out of uh, a cultural movement, mm-hmm. right, away from processed food um, and away from mainstream kind of Anglo culture in America. And it's, you know, it's the perfect place that it comes from is from a Zen retreat mm-hmm. that had... Before it was a Zen retreat, it was just like a resort. And so it had changed from this kind of decadent thing uh-huh. into a Zen center. And this man who'd gone as a cook, just a regular cook when it was a resort, he changed with it. Mm. So he took up Zen and kind of added it to his food ways at the same time that the center did. But what I love about the book is that it's, um, it gives food a voice and a character and it gives you the responsibility to as the cook to um to connect to the food and help the food achieve its its best self kind of yeah. to use contemporary language. Yeah. So it's a really really kind of silly scenario, but also very heartfelt and mm-hmm. um and it, it's also full of very traditional recipes too. Yeah. So it's not all tofu and soy sauce, which wasn't really traditional for his audience. Uh, who are you know middle class Anglo people in California? It's it, but it's got coffee cake in it, and it's got like peanut butter and kind of ordinary it's American food. The ways. strangest book, but yet it's like the reflection of a of a time yeah. and a people yeah, and what they beautiful. ate. It's really interesting, and also a return to making bread from scratch, right? right? From naturally <laughs> yeast leavened. Um, processes and using whole grains and it it changes the aesthetic or it's part of a bigger change in the aesthetic of bread so what had mm-hmm. been valued for a really long time like hundreds bread. of mm-hmm. years white bread mm-hmm. was seen as better than brown bread and you only eat brown bread if you couldn't afford white bread and it completely flips that and yeah. says you're a sucker if you eat white bread only you know the smart people know that whole wheat mm-hmm. is is the, it's like the most delicious thing and it's virtuous so it's like it's good for you. It's good for the planet. It's, it's alive. Um, it it's is, a, it's right? organisms that live in this, you know, dough. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's true. And you see that you know continue with mm-hmm. cult hits like the Tartine Bread Book and, right. and so forth. Now modernist bread. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is such a huge book. I, I don't even know what to do with. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine fitting it in a little kitchen? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
They take up a lot of the room, more than the bread, probably. Right. One thing that's interesting um, is that there was an explosion of cookbooks after the Civil War. Yes. About Southern food. Yes. Yeah. What was this? What, how did that? Why do you think that happened? Um, well, I think it happened. Uh, this, this is my argument, and other I think other cookbook historians agree with this that it's part of the white Southern attempt to reclaim cultural dominance and political dominance in the no South. No kidding. Yeah, right. that makes sense. So it's we. Some people call it the lost cuisine to go with the lost cause mythology Aww. that the you know the South lost the Civil War, but um, they had a noble cause. And you see this argument repeated again and again in cookbooks. You see this persistent and disgusting argument that um, Southern cooking was better with slavery. And that you can never, you will never taste how wonderful Southern food was. What? Yeah. (laughs) And unless you could go back in time. um, And now, you know, you just can't get good help. But isn't that saying that, you know, the enslaved cooks were much better cooks than we are? Yes, but so the way that they're, they phrase it, and this is a kind of familiar argument in other situations too, is they're naturally better than us. That's what they're meant to do, is cook for us. Wow. And so we just don't have the skills. You know, poor white people, we just can't get in the kitchen and, and make things, you know, make the magic. There's a lot of talk about black magic and mysterious arts and stuff. It's, these books were really stomach-turning. I mean, I yeah. felt like... You know, the recipes, if you cook them in your kitchen, they might be delicious, but the ideology that's mm-hmm. putting them on the page was just repellent. That's <laughs> And very odd, too, to, like, make an emission. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> I, I don't want to get into whatever mindset those folks are in, but... But I think it's, like, now, I think more people are noticing it now in the um, how we talk about Southern food and Southern mm-hmm. hospitality, that yeah. we're kind of, un- we're going back and, and, and digging under that, the way that yeah. we're sort of taking away... Confederate monuments. It's this, it's time to do that with the cookbooks as well. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a turning point. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really exciting. So, where do you think American cookbooks are headed now? Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I mean the ones that I see just just physically are bigger. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. So there's these great big bricks that They're are more expensive. <laughs> yes. Yes. And there's like one picture on a page, and then one recipe. Um, I, I think they're headed in a really interesting direction because they have to compete with blogs. Uh-huh. So I, I don't know what that's going to look like. I mean, I've been waiting for for the for the digital media and cookbooks to kind of meet in a way that they haven't yet. They tried, but it didn't really work. Right? There's not like you'd the think, ebook or yeah. her cookbook wasn't just didn't it's dead, touch on. Right? It doesn't like. You'd think it would be that you you get your e-cookbook and it comes to life. Right. And it talks to you. can see you. a video here and then right. you can hear sounds of what this should sound like when you cook it here. Yes. I don't know. Yes. And maybe a chat um, with the author or a chat with someone who just ate the thing that was cooked. But the, the multimedia um, opportunities mm-hmm. haven't come to be yet. So we're, we still have like big, beautiful, delicious looking cookbooks and then wonderful blogs and wonderful recipe sites. Mm-hmm. And nothing that bridges it, right. as far okay. as I know. I mean, I may, be, may not be paying enough attention. A cookbook is still very much a cookbook, right. meaning it is still a book. And I keep meeting people who say, oh, I have thousands of cookbooks, and, you know, I, um, I love them all. I never cook from them, but I love to just read them in the evening. And I think that you're never going to find digitally, mm-hmm. that the, the, 
the reading of cookbooks the way that we read novels or the way that we read fantasy in, in particular. Yeah. Like, I'm going somewhere when I get into this, when I get into one of those Autolenghi cookbooks. So I'm like, I'm off somewhere else. And <laughs> it doesn't matter what I'm really eating. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like it's still got, got legs. It's, I what, 200 so. years old? Right. <laughs> so now right, right, right. Um, we look forward to seeing perhaps a sequel oh. to American cookbooks <laughs> yeah. from Megan J. Elias <laughs> in the future. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I suggest anyone looking for gifts, for people who really like cookbooks, this is a really great book, Food on the Page by Megan J. Elias. All right. Uh, from Penn Press, University of Pennsylvania Press. All right. Thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Never, 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 never had no loving like this before.